Welcome to the Trailblazing in Color podcast, where we talk to change makers and innovators focused on upending systems not designed by or for them to create a more inclusive and equitable world. I'm your host, Sarah Chapman Becerra. Welcome to the show. Hi, all. Welcome to the show. Before we jump into today's conversation, let me tell you about our guest. Joan Mays is the owner of Life in Seven Coaching and Consulting and the creator of Work Wellness Academy, a learning community dedicated to holistic personal and professional growth. She is a certified personal and executive coach, speaker, career strategist, and work culture consultant who helps people reinvent their relationship with work so they can show up at work and in life happy, healthy, and whole. Joan partners with businesses and organizations that want to create a culture of well-being, one that produces motivated employees who thrive in their work environment. Joan is on a mission to change the conversation and culture around why and how we work. Joan, I am so glad to have you here today. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, let's start beyond your bio. I want to invite you to tell us a little bit more about your story and your journey. Can you share what feels most important to you for people to know about who you are and how you came to this work? Well, I think the most important thing to know is just that I really and truly love my work. Everything that I've done in my life, I've really loved and want to give my all every time I go to work. And so I'm one of those people, it's like work is where I find meaning, work is where I find purpose, and work is where I really feel like I serve the people that I'm working with and working for. And so it's really important for me to have that balance. And I and I can say that when I first started working, I did not have that balance. And it was fine for a while, but when you go that hard into your work for so long and you tie your worth up into your work that it can create a really dysfunctional relationship with work. And so I came to this work because I worked in higher education for 23 years. I was a student affairs professional. So I did everything from residence life until my last position when I was the Dean of Students. And so I've done multicultural work, I've done DEIB, I've done leadership training, student activities, all of that. And it was a really great experience because I really got to be a lifelong learner. I learned how to be a lifelong learner there. When I was in undergrad, at first I wanted to be a lawyer. And then when I decided I didn't want to be a lawyer and started thinking about what I wanted to do, I knew I wanted to work on a college campus. At that time, I didn't know how to do that. I thought the only way to do that was to be a professor. But after going to grad school to try to become a professor, I realized that was not the aspect of of higher ed that I loved and got into student affairs and realized that all the other experiences that I had in college that had made college so impactful for me happened outside of the classroom. And there were people there helping me along the way. And I wanted to be one of those people for other students. And so, like I said, I dived head on into it and and hire it as one of those places because you're on a college campus. It can be everything for you, right? You can get your friends there. You could go to events. You know, you get all kinds of uh, learning and growth and different things just by being on campus. And so the first several years of my career, that's what it was. It was like that was my my work, my home, and my play, especially even my home, because I was working in residence life at first. So I was living on campus. I was working on campus. And so there was really no divide. And I think where um, I started to become interested in this balance and started to do that for myself was when I got to a position and I was in a really toxic work environment and giving my all wasn't enough. Early in my career, I was lucky enough to have supervisors and people around me who really and truly were good supervisors. They, If I did my work and I did it with care and I gave my all, they rewarded that. And I, so I'm a person like, you know, if you're invested and I'm invested, I'll give it all, you know. But 
at this job that I went to, this work environment that I was in, it was really toxic. People, it didn't matter my work anymore. It was more a judgment of me. It was like, your work is great, but if you could just be a little more quiet, if you could just not be so opinionated, if you could just not be so intimidating is often the word used. And anyone who knows me is like, I'm not intimidating. I'm just like, <laughs> like I've never done anything that would do that. But again, being a Black woman, of course, there's already this stigma on you. And so I had to really start to examine the division between being at work and having a life outside of work. Because for the first time, I couldn't do everything. I couldn't get everything from work because it was just a place where I couldn't trust anyone. Like people were really judgmental. There was a lot of politics. There was a lot of clickiness and a lot of micromanaging and also punishment for going against what certain leaders wanted. And Mm -hmm. so I had to stop and think about what was happening because at the same time I was in debt, I was, you know, unhealthy and I really didn't have too much to do outside of work. And so I went on this journey of personal growth and because work is where I got a lot of my validation, it started right there in my work. So what did that journey look like to moving through that toxic environment, which you couldn't just, you know, the next day go and and quit your job. It sounds like it was, it was a process to really identify what wasn't working, move through some of the the self-care tactics that you had to instill for yourself because it wasn't coming from your external environment anymore. So how did you move through it? How did you kind of decide what you were going to do next when you realize, oh, this isn't working and I need to do things differently. So when I got to that workplace, the first thing that happened was I met my boss and, you know, they kind of wooed me there and I got there. And then little by little, I found that, you know, some of the things that I was told would be weren't. And so I got there like, hey, where's all this stuff? And just me being myself like, hey, didn't we say we were going to do X, Y, Z? And why are we doing this? And you know, my natural questioning nature of like, why are we doing this again? And does that make sense? And different things of that nature. And we were at an event. We had taken students away for a retreat and we were at an event and the event was going all right, but it was like a weekend retreat and students were tired. And me and some of the other facilitators were like, hey, you know, maybe we should ask them to like change up the schedules a little bit. Let us have a break and then give the students a break. And then we regroup and do this thing or whatever, because I had all these big ideas. And so I, being the volunteer that I am, was like, oh, I'll go ask him. I'll go ask if we could do this. And so I went and I said, you know, hey, we were just talking and we wanted to know if we could change things around, da, 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 da. And they said, sure. And they walked away and it's like, okay, yeah, we're going to change it up. And then like five minutes later, their supervisor came in and said, Joan, can we speak to you for a minute? And then he took me out in the hallway. He said, your supervisor would like to speak to you for a minute about something. And so I went into this room and he proceeded to tell me how I was being divisive and how I was trying to undermine them and, and that I was always questioning stuff and they needed to know if I was really in this or if I was going to leave because they da, 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 da. And they like really went off. And then they, they actually said at one point earlier in the day, we had to deal with a student issue. And I said, why didn't you tell somebody about the student's issue? Because we had a student who needed assistance. And I said, why didn't you tell people? And I took like a little light folder, like one of those like little like three prong folders. And I tapped him with it. I said, why didn't you tell, tell us about that? And so when we were in the room and he was like, you know, reaming me, about how it's be divisive, he said, and you assaulted me earlier and I'm writing you up for assaulting me. And I said, oh, I said, really? And they said, yeah, you have been terrible since you've been here. Granted, this person was someone who, when I first got there was like, oh yes, let's go out. Let me help you find furniture for your, your house. Let me do all these different things. And I was just like, oh wow. I It was like a, this was like a complete 360. Like I thought that because 
we we had been having those conversations that you know like oh yeah I'm a laid back boss I like when people say that oh I'm laid back and da 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 it's like but you're still my boss right and I didn't I didn't get that at that point in my career I didn't get the fact that yeah we can be cool but at some point you're still my boss and mm-hmm. that's a power differential that does not work in my favor if I'm being completely open and honest and friendly with you and then you can at any time go like, no, and lay a boundary and reprimand me without me knowing. So they told me that I had assaulted them, that they were referring me to HR. And the first part of that conversation, I was just like, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize that, you know, I said, I said, I, I play, you know, tap people all the time. I said, but I know everybody doesn't have those boundaries. So I apologize right now. And if you feel like you need to write me up, I understand. And I was trying to de-escalate it, but they were being so mean. And so at one point I just sat there and cried. I was just sitting there crying because I just couldn't understand it. I couldn't wrap my mind around what was happening. And then I got mad (laughs) because I realized that this person that I had trusted was basically taking everything that I had told them you know, like, tell me if anything is wrong. And I was telling them like, hey, you told me that this was going to be happening and it's not. I don't know if I found any friends yet, da, 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 da. But they were like taking everything that I had told them and they were using it now to to say like, oh, you're not a team player. Oh, you've never liked it here. Oh, you're always complaining, da, 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 da. And so as I sat there, at first I was like really hurt. And then I sat there and I got angry and I was just like, I can't believe this. So I made a conscious choice because I'm very conscious of, you know, my surroundings or whatever. And I made a conscious choice at that moment to tell them off. And I stood up and I said, you are the fakest, most two-faced person I have ever seen. I can't believe that we are here at a retreat dedicated to diversity understanding, you're a person of color and you are doing this. I said, I can't believe this. And he said, see, you know, you're angry, you're upset or whatever. Cause you know, I'm an aggressive person or whatever. I wasn't doing anything, but I was crying. And I was just saying like, you are whatever. He was like, see, you're out of control. You're this. I said, I can't believe you're playing the angry black woman card on me at the diversity retreat. I said, I can't believe this. I can't believe this is happening. And I said, you know what? I said, I just can't believe it. I said, I now know who you are. And so then I did the 360 where I was like, got very calm. And I sat down in front of him and I said, that's okay. You don't have to worry. I said, I will be the best worker from now on. I said, you don't have to worry about me. And he was like, well, you're going to get written up. I said, that's fine. If that's what you have to do, go ahead and do it. And he was like, and I said, that's all right. You know? And I just sat there and then he was like, I'm done. And so then they walked out of the room and I went out of the room and I went and got their supervisor and I brought their supervisor in the room. And I said, I just wanted to let you know that they told me that they are writing me up and then I'm going to go have to go to HR. And I said, I realize now that this means that they're going to be watching me. And I said, but here's what I want you to know about me. I said, I want you to know about me is that I'm very good at what I do. and there is nothing that he's going to be able to find to attack my work. I said, and when he can't find it, he's going to make something up. And I said, while I know he's watching me, he's my supervisor, I need somebody watching him because I don't trust him as far as I can throw him. I said, but what he doesn't know is he thinks that because I'm a new person on this campus that he can do this and people will believe him. I said, but what he doesn't know is I've already established my character and my reputation amongst people here. And he won't be able to find it. And people will not believe him when he goes, because I said, I put my reputation up against his reputation any day. I said, but I want somebody watching him because I know that he's going to try to get me out of here because now he feels threatened by me questioning and asking for change and different things of that nature. Then I walked out and the rest of the weekend, I was just like, hey, y'all, how y'all doing? Da, 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 da. And I think that threw him totally off because he was the type of person is like, he could goat people into doing things. 
and I wasn't taking the bait. So we got back on campus and I understood what had happened, but I was still basically depressed. So I know that at that point I went into depression. So I was literally getting up, crying, going to work, driving to work, crying, pulling myself together in the parking lot, going through a whole day with my face, you know, on for everybody else, getting in my car in the evening, crying all the way home, going home, getting in bed, crying myself to sleep, and then waking up and crying. That went on for a week. And then he gave me the letter that he had written up for that. They told me I had to go through an anger management module. I was told in the letter, he said that I was flailing my hands at him, that I said I was an angry Black woman, and he wasn't going to tell me what to do. Like he had twisted all the words around. And I went to the HR department because there were other people there that had witnessed our interactions. And I said, you know, could you all write something that says I did not assault him? And so I had these letters and I had this stuff. So I went to HR like, okay, we're going to hear certain sides of the story. And I gave all the stuff to HR. And the woman there said, and she was also a Black woman, she said, I don't care what he did. He's your supervisor. And you should never, ever touch him in any way. And you also should never, ever question him. And therefore, it doesn't matter. So I had all the proof on my side. And she was like, it doesn't matter. He's your supervisor. If he's your supervisor, he can write you up. You can't report him. That's it. And again, so that continued my week of depression. <laughs> you know, that could just continue that, that cycle. And I couldn't, I really couldn't believe it. Like, yes, that is unbelievable. So many aspects of it yeah. and the, the lack of protection. And so... That weekend, I had to go on campus for an event, and I went into our building, and I got into the elevator, and he literally walked up and got into the elevator with me because he was also on campus for something. And when we got on, I told him he could submit the form or whatever. I would take the anger management or whatever on Friday. So on Saturday morning, we're there, and he gets on the elevator, and he looks at me after he submitted all of this to HR, and he says, I really feel bad. I feel like I could have handled that differently, da, 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 da. And I really want us to get back to the place that we were before we were becoming friends, blah, 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 blah. Maybe we should go and get counseling. We had a counseling center on campus. And so he was like, maybe we can have somebody from the counseling center mediate for us and we could come together. And I was like, sure. And then they said, can I get a hug? And I said, sure. And then I, you know, walked out because at this point, again, I'm very thoughtful about things. At this point, I was like, I am not falling for anything. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like I am going to be the epitome of professionalism or whatever, because I know that if I step one boundary out of line, I no longer trusted that, oh, I could be less than perfect. And I think that's the thing that, that we always have to be conscious of when we're interacting in toxic work environments is can we be safe? Is it safe to be and say everything you do? Because people say like, oh, well, you should tell this person off. Da, da, da. I'm like, I if, if it's not safe, I'm a, I'm a very self-protective person. <laughs> like mm -hmm. I will survive, like I will survive everything. But in order to do that, you also have to weigh your risk and weigh the benefits of doing what you did. I took a risk in telling him off and telling him off, but I did that consciously. I knew I was going to get, I'm like, I'm already going to be written up for HR. So let me just tell you right now, me and you, I'm going to tell you exactly what I think of you. I don't care if you know it, but I also know then that that sets me up. I know now that we are, you know, that I am on your list and that I need to watch myself around you. So I'll give you the respect that you deserve as a supervisor, not because you deserve it, but because that's who I am. I respect the people who are my supervisors. And even if you're acting funny, I behave in integrity with my values and how I want to show up as a person. And so after all of this drama or whatever, I started to think about like, what do I need to do? Because I was, like I said, I was in depression. I knew I was depressed. I knew I had already sacrificed health and everything, trying to be everything for the, the months before that. And so 
I decided that I was going to make some changes so that I could, you know, get my health back in order or whatever. And so I went to him during our one-on-one and I said, here's what I'm going to need to change some things. I said, because I can't let you all kill me. I said, I'm going to need to change my hours because I was staying really late because the students were staying late and had programs and events. So most of the time I didn't get home until around six or seven anyway. And so I told him, I said, I'm going to change my hours. I'm going to work from 10 to seven. And for me doing that was so that I could get up in the morning and I could read, I could meditate, I could pray, I could go for a run, I could do all those things, get myself together, and then go into work, do what I had to do, and um, and then go home. So that was the first step in crafting time for myself and adjusting my own hours, which were fine, because again, I was staying eight hours. I mean, technically, we're supposed to only work 40 hours a week, even though it was, of course, much more than that in higher education. Mm-hmm. And then also making a conscious effort to start to take care of myself outside of that realm and then making adjustments to how I was working. So I made an adjustment to how I worked. And so those two things, because I'm also a little bit of a productivity nerd. And so I love organization and I love school supplies and I love all of that stuff. And so what I realized was that, you know, hey, I need to tweak some of the ways that I do my work so that one, I could keep to a certain hours and I was being effective, but I also, so I wouldn't burn myself out doing my work. Yes. So personal growth and productivity together became my solution for how I dealt with that toxic work environment. So it's like, this is what I need to do to be efficient and productive and successful in my job. And this is what I need to maintain my sanity and to maintain my time, attention, and my capacity to go into that environment and do that work. So powerful in terms of looking at both of those things and starting to set those boundaries because already you you were giving so much and so it's it's thinking about well is this necessary and am I as connected to pushing myself as hard hey if you are enjoying the show be sure you subscribe and join our community at trailblazingincolor.com where we share resources, connect you with other amazing trailblazers in our trailblazer circles, and amplify our collective power. Hope we see you there. Okay, back to the show. Mm -hmm. We talk a lot about motivation, I know. And how do you sustain that motivation? How do you help Mm -hmm. employees sustain their motivation and leaders help their employees do the same, but also you have to source it from yourself. And I Mm -hmm. think there's specific parts of your story that are very much yours. And yet these things we hear about the power dynamics and we experience in these hierarchies are pretty common. I would say we hear these stories all of the time. And especially in terms of things like pet to threat, where you're having to show up, push and still you still have all of these stigmas around you yeah. and your performance. And so it's yeah. it's an unfortunate reality that people like you are doing a lot to combat. So I want to hear what are some of the, the most common things that you see organizations struggling with in terms mm-hmm. of these toxic cultures and how we move through them and past them and create something different? Yeah. I think the other thing that I learned in this experience was to change my focus and reconnect with the why of why I was doing my work. So my job wasn't to make my supervisor happy. My job was to educate and develop students. And so we spend so much time and people in organizations spend so much time trying to get their workers to do for them. It's like, you're not my focus. My focus is the customer. So if you're doing something that affects that customer, in a negative way, it's my responsibility if you're caring about the organization and the mission of the organization to challenge you when I know something that you're doing or that you might do will negatively affect the outcome we all say we're here for. So I had to change my focus. So in that environment, the other thing that I did was I gave up the hope and the prayer that these people would turn around and say, Joan is valuable. 
and Joan is wonderful and we love her. And there's nothing, you know, we accept her and love her just for who she is. And she's not a threat just because she's a black woman. Like I, I, I didn't even care. I knew they didn't like me. I knew they weren't going to support me. And I knew I wasn't going to get any type of validation from them. So you know what I said to myself? If my students are happy and if I'm doing my job, then that's going to have to be enough. And if I'm doing my job, they can't get rid of me without some repercussion. So I'm like, you can fire me if you want to, but it'll be Joan University by the end of the day because I will sue you. Like you cannot fire me or harass me or do any of that without cause, right? And they tried mm-hmm. it. You know, that same supervisor during our mediation said like, oh, well, HR said in a year, if everything is okay, you've been fine, that I could take that form out of your file. And I said, oh, great. And I was perfect. And almost to the day later, I remember going in and thinking like, I'm going into this one-on-one with this person. And hey, it's been a year. I should ask them about that thing that they said they were going to take out of my file. Because at that point, they had given me the retreat because he wanted to see me fail at it, basically. (laughs) But it was being very, very successful. So a few days before that retreat, they handed me another letter saying trumped up stuff. Like I walked away from a conversation looking angry. I had disagreed with a coworker in a meeting and... They wrote me up for that, but they didn't write up the coworker for us having a disagreement in the meeting. And it was a disagreement that we both said was not a big deal because they came and talked to us afterwards. We were like, what are you talking about? We do that all the time. You know, you know how you're in a meeting or whatever. And so mm-hmm. I knew that they they weren't going to support me. But again, my focus was on the students. Are the students getting what they need? Are the students getting what they want? Are the students developing? Am I doing what's right for them? That was my only focus. And so one of the things I think we need to do is we need to reconnect with our why of why we're working. And what is the purpose behind our work? Because yes, we might have to navigate a negative boss, but at the end of the day, all I'm trying to do is, is decrease your impact on my life, basically. I'm right. de- I need to decrease your impact and your ability to stop me from doing what I'm supposed to be doing, which is working with these students and giving these students what they deserve. And if I do that, go ahead and try and fire me. And you can't fire me because you know the value of my work. So I had to also believe in the value of my work and know that what I was doing, I wasn't doing anything that was worthy of a reprimand. I wasn't doing anything contrary to what my job was. So then that means you have to come at me and then you have to justify your actions. I don't have to justify mine because this is my job and I'm doing my job and therefore, you know, there's nothing you could do. So I think you have to readjust your focus and go back to why you're doing that. And as long as they're not impeding you from doing that, then that has to be enough. You have to have your own validation. I tell people all the time, I have my own code. You know, I got it from, if you ever watched The Wire and Omar said, every man has to have a code about that. And I said, you know what? That's right. I do have to have a code. And so when I go home at night, I go through my code and I say, did I behave in a way that is in line with who I say I am and want to be? Did I adhere to the values that I express as the values that I want? And did I do my best, even if I fell short? And if I've met all of those, because there's other ones, but if I've met those things, then I go to sleep at night, fine. What used to happen was when I didn't stay in alignment with those values, then I would be in my head like I should have said this and I should have done this and why didn't I do this? And I would be on myself. But I slept much better at night because it's like I'm not judging my performance and my worth by their standards. I'm judging it by mine. And they can't do anything about it because at the end of the day, I sleep very well and I'm doing good work. And the proof is in the pudding, you know, because no one ever said anything to me about my work, not even necessarily about my attitude doing the work, but they always wanted me just to be a little bit smaller Mm. and a little bit less of who I was. When people see that you have something of value to give, they will either try to control it or if they can't control it, they try to contain it. And if they can't contain it, they'll try to destroy it. So 
I've been that like, they're like, oh, you have something. Maybe we can use that. Let's see if we can adjust that and use it to our benefit. And then when they realize like, it's not, you're not letting them use you in the way they want you to be used. They want to use you and you're not lifting them up or you make them feel like they are not as great because they have their own issues with their own value and worth. Then they go, okay, well, why don't you just play it down? Why don't you just be, you know, not say as much because this is how I do it. I've had those supervisors too of like, I know you do it this way, but you know, the way I've seen it, like people who try to mentor me, quote unquote, mentor me when actually they're trying to turn me into a version of them. And it's like, that's not how I flow. I don't flow in Jedi mind tricks and passive aggressiveness. Like I just tell you straight. I tell you kindly what I'm thinking, but I tell you directly because a lot gets lost in the translation. Some people don't take subtlety very well. Right. So I'm just like, I can't be you, but I'm going to be me. And I, and there's a way that I can be me and we can both get the same outcome, but they wouldn't see that. So when they couldn't use it and contain it, then it'd be like, oh, well, you're just too much, or you don't listen to people, or you're this and this and that, or freezing you out, or downplaying your your role, even though you know, or stealing your work and claiming responsibility for your work or being condescending. I had a VP one, the only compliment, the only things they ever said to me was, you sure do like that mic. Hmm. Because I was, I was presenting in front of people and I used to talk and people used to be like, oh, Joan is so funny when she gets out the microphone and blah, 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 blah. And that was her quote, like, you sure do like that microphone. That was her thing. But it was like, but you know what? I did this presentation one time for some students. I said, I did a presentation called How Your Haters Make You Greater. And I said, when someone points out something and they mean it as pointing out a flaw or something that you should be ashamed of, I said, take note of that because that might be where your power or your gift is because you're different in some way. I said, so when she said, you sure do like that microphone or you sure know how to use that microphone, I was like, I have a gift for speaking in front of people. I have a Mm -hmm. gift for wielding crowds and yielding events, you know, where I could like, create an event, do an event and whatever. I'm like, that's something. She's pointing out a strength, even though she's trying to make it seem like a weakness or making it seem like a dig. So you made me great in that moment, you know, because I now can use what you're doing because I see what you're doing and I see the insecurity in you and it's highlighting the confidence in me. There's so much power in that, in the redirection of other people's perceptions, of negative aspects. I love that. Turning it into a positive or really, well, what are you saying about me? You're saying I'm uniquely this or that. And mm-hmm. what if I reframed it for myself? I also think there's so much power, again, in having your own code, the way you said that and the way that we can really only manage ourselves and manage our own perception of ourselves and how in alignment we're staying with what we're out here trying to do. And so to say at the end of each day, did I do this? Did I do this? Did I do this? There's my report card. Everyone else can have their own perspectives and opinions, but I know the report card I'm holding myself up against and that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. And I'll surround myself with people, the people that I choose I'll surround myself with people that understand that and have their own self-connection and alignment. And so now you work with a lot of companies and organizations because we know we're seeing an epidemic at minimum of toxic workplaces that people are no longer standing for. We saw that with with COVID, with the pandemic, with this the great resignation, and also with reports that say people are leaving these toxic cultures. They're not going to stick around you're going to find new opportunities or new ways of of working that serve you. So what are some of the things that you're seeing and how are you working with companies right now to help them improve that Mm -hmm. specifically and knowing that it starts in these power dynamics and hierarchies that we have? Yeah. And uh, the great resignation, let's just call it what it was. It was a jailbreak. It's like somebody flew open the door and everybody's just like, run, (laughs) run for your lives. This is our opportunity. Oh, you know, yes, and it it was it was one of those those moments where, and I was one of them, you know, because for years I had talked about 
doing something outside of higher education. I worked for, in higher education for 23 years. And so I loved it. Like I said, I loved working with the students. I loved that. and did not particularly care for some of the toxic ways in which we behaved, but I had found a way to deal with it. And I could have stayed there and kept dealing with it. You know, I was all right, but I felt like there was something bigger I wanted to do. And I felt like if I didn't take that opportunity to do it right then, I would cop out. And so what happened in the in the pandemic and in COVID was that we got a chance to be out of those environments and do work. And so we got to do our work without having to be subjected to the office politics and the negative people and the toxic work habits. We could set our own hours. And people said, I kind of like that because I'm still doing my work but I can be with my family and I can take a break when I want to, and I can stop and eat lunch and I can stop and, you know, go for a walk, you know, and I don't have to kill myself trying to get into work every day and then be around people who basically keep me from doing my work and then have to stay after work and actually get the work done. Right. Yes. And so what we're seeing are people who realize now that just like I did, there's more to life than work, even though work is a big part of who we are. There's, it doesn't have to be either or, either like you're all about work or you're, you're living your life. It's like life is a part of our work. It's not a separate part. I think that's what the issue was, is like we have been treating work as if it's a separate life. Like. You can be a kind, generous person who, you know, has faith and deals with their family and is centered and everything like that. But when you come to work, you leave all your personal stuff at home and then you come into work and then you're just this new person. Like, I'm not the same person I am at work as I am at home. That sounds like either schizophrenia or like a sociopath, somebody living two separate lives. Like, that's not that's not that's not good to dissociate like that. But that's what we were trying to do. Have you seen the show Severance? I started um, to watch that. The show really takes that to the next level of this idea that um, – so the premise is, for those that haven't seen it, they put, put a chip in your head, head or something Yeah, where when you go to work and leave work, you have no memory of, of either aspect of your life. So when you're at work, you have no idea what your life is like outside of work and vice versa when you're at home. And I think – they didn't get that idea out of nowhere. They got that idea yes. out of this expectation that we we kind of close all of that off as soon as we get to work and we're fully dedicated and devoted to doing whatever it takes yeah. at work without Question. consideration of all of the other aspects that make uh, that make up our lives and our emotional states too. It's so so much bigger than than going in every day. It's so wrong to think of that and to to ask people to be someone that they're not just to be able to make a living and to do the work that they they've trained and and to do what they many feel are their purpose in life to have to be somebody else in order to do that and I don't and I, and I guess in a way once I started this journey part of it was like exploring again, my personal growth, my personal evolution. And I think that's what's missing. We don't do the inner work. We always talk about hard skills and soft skills and everybody always poo-poo's the soft skills, right? Like, oh, we don't have time for that. You just do that on your your own. But what I found was that I was trying to keep them, you know, kind of separate. So as I was going through all this personal growth and development and, you know, taking care of my body and my mind and, and everything like that, when I went to work, every piece of sanity and peace that I had built up outside of work got sucked away as soon as I walked into that door. And so it was this constant of bu- filling myself up and being drained, filling myself up and being drained because work is hard just in general. Like work can be hard just in general. Even when you're doing something you love, you're expending energy. Right. And there has to come a point where you like rest. And so what I try to communicate to both organizations and leaders and organizations, but also to individuals is that 
you can't have this this deficit fill thing kind of because at some point one is going to suffer and our work affects so many other aspects of our wellness, right? The National Wellness Institute, they have these six dimensions of wellness and they talk about, you know, spiritual and social and physical and then occupational is one of those things, but it's like, but occupational affects your physical, it affects your mental, it affects your social, it affects all of these other aspects in a deep and profound way. And we spend a good chunk, if not a, a majority of our time at work, right? If we do just the regular, what did they say? Eight hours a day, five days a week. But we know that people do way more than that. So, yes. and then we have a big chunk of time where we're asleep, <laughs> hopefully. There's not a lot of time for anything else. So if I'm not developing and, and being well at work, then the majority of our time, I'm not being well. So we yes. can't be a well person if our work life is off. Most people don't have the luxury of being like millionaires who can just like, you know, define their own work hours or whatever and do all this other stuff. We have to have wellness at work. So what I try to have people concentrate on is it's not the work because we always bring people in to talk about how can we be more efficient? How can we do this work? How do we focus on connecting with people out there. It's like, you got to connect inside first, right? So you work from the inside out. So how are you working? Do you have unreasonable expectations? Do you have a common understanding of what your purpose and goal is? Mm, yes. You know, do you have accountability? Do you have the ability to separate and rest? Do you, do you incorporate rest into your culture? If you know that rest is important for physical wellness, then rest is important for occupational and, and work wellness, right? And so you have to make sure that your work environment does not drain the people who you need and rely on to do the work. So how are you working? And the way we work is unhealthy. It's not the work itself. Like, Oh, it's hard for teachers. Teachers love what they do. It's the way you make them do it that drains the life out of them. Mm -hmm. It's all of those things that make you frustrated, right? And so when people say that being a healthcare worker or being a first responder or being anything, a student affairs professional or anybody else, the work is too hard or this is too hard and it's it's... It's not that, it's how we're making people do it. And that's what we have to break. And that's the conversation I talk about changing. Because for example, like just recently with the Elon Musk thing, you know, this whole, you're not ready to be hardcore and work long hours and da, 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 da. And I was so happy to hear that most people were like, okay, give me my three months. And I'm just like, uh -huh. yes, take your three months and run. Get out of there. Run Hurry. for your life. You can find work to do. And we have to start rejecting that. Otherwise, people will go back to it. And that's what happened after we had the lockdowns. The lockdowns were people and organizations trying to say, now, how can we go back to the way we used to do stuff? And it was like, you can't because every rule you've ever told us about how we have to work in order to be productive just got debunked. It just went out the window because we have been working, even though that was challenging at first too, we have been working from home. You've been getting your work and I didn't have to be in your face and I didn't have to be in 50 meetings and I didn't have to come into the office in order to do this work. And so now you want to tell me that that's what we have to do to go back to work. I don't think so. Like you are lying, you know? And so that was the good thing that the pandemic did. It broke that system. And it showed that that system is not necessarily what has to happen. And that's what we have to do. We have to go on and build a new thing and not try to go back and get the old thing back because people aren't having it. They're like, I, I saw the promised land. I saw that I, how my family benefited from me being around. I saw how I benefited from not having to be in that toxic work environment and fight traffic and do all those different things. I saw it with my own eyes and you can't have me unsee that and go back to the way that we used to do stuff. Yeah. And I think that is 
that is what I appreciate about your work so much is that you're really helping to move kind of through because I do feel as much as we think the mindset has shifted, there are still a lot of organizations. I was working with a higher ed client <laughs> the other week that said, we're in planning a, a leadership retreat for all of their managers and supervisors. And they said, we, we really want to use this time to talk about how we can get back to the way things were. Uh, Pre-pandemic <laughs> was what they were referencing. And in my head, I'm like, oh, no, no, no. Oh, no. And then we see on a larger stage, the Elon Musk and Twitter situation. And so there is still a lot to do in terms of the pause and the, hey, what's, let's reflect on what we've learned and how we can institute those learnings into making this a place where employees feel that sustained well-being and can give their best work as a result. Yeah. And so that's what the framework that I built about work wellness is about breaking down those other aspects of work that are important to people so that organizations can, can start to look at how they provide those other aspects. So for example, most of the time people talk about like, okay, we talk about compensation, like does the job pay well? Um, we talk about competence, like are you good at it, you know, and then title and achievement. So, okay. Are you moving up? Are you the boss? Can you be the boss? Can you make more money? Whatever, whatever. And so this is what people always come at. Oh, well, we'll give you a signing bonus. We'll do this. We'll do that. Everything that they do is usually around compensation and benefits and title. Like you'll move up faster or whatever. But there's so many other aspects. For example, there's purpose, meaning, and legacy. So there are people like myself who... It's so much more important to me that I believe and can connect to the purpose behind what I'm doing and it's giving meaning in some way. It's so much more important to me than money. Not that money's not important because mama likes nice things, but it's just as and sometimes more important because there's only so many, you know, pretty things I can buy myself, right? And I know some people will disagree with that. Well, and so much you can tolerate and let that be enough. So I think compensation title works well in the beginning, maybe. And then over time, nobody not needs those other things. I used to tell that to students when they used to um, apply to be resident assistants. They used to apply to be RAs because they're like, oh, I get my room for free? Yeah. And I'm like, at some point, when we are up at three o'clock in the morning, you're having to knock on one of your peers' doors and tell them to be quiet or write them up for doing something wrong. I'm like, at some point, that room and that free meal plan is not going to be enough. So I need you to have another reason besides the fact that you're getting a room and a free meal plan to do this work, because it's not about that, because all work comes with good things and bad things, right? And so what do other people hold on to? For example, another dimension of work wellness is agency and ownership. There are some people, it's more important that I have control over the manner of my work than having the highest title. If my boss can just get off my back and not be a micromanager, that's more important to me than the money. Because if you have someone who you can't even you know, make decisions, you can't even do your best work because they're trying to control every aspect of it, that's when people leave. They'll tolerate it for a minute until I find another job. But when people are tolerating you, that's not a good sign. They're going to leave as soon as they get a chance, right? So you have to know, are you working with an agency and ownership person, but you're a person who can't let stuff go? You're a person who can't delegate. You're a person who needs to control every aspect. You could be inadvertently losing the people that are good workers, not because they're just terrible and they're not committed. It's because you are too overbearing. And if you don't know that that's the main thing that they're looking for, then you will run them off eventually. Then there's culture and connection. So those are the people who want their um, work environment to align with their values and they want to be connected to a community. So I work at the YMCA and I, you know, do some work there. And so like the Y is all about community. Like it's like you could go to a 24 hour fitness or you can go to the Y. Like the 24-hour yeah. fitness might be like prettier and shinier, but people go to the YMCA 
because they want to be a part of the community that the YMCA creates and they can work out, right? And so you have to know these things about people and the people you're working with so that you as an organization can provide connection to them, to your organization in different ways. Yes. There's so many pieces there that I think organizations, when they're just starting out on this, of moving into how we might do things differently, they they don't consider. They don't consider necessarily how does all of the work that we're doing roll up to a bigger purpose? How do we make sure that at every level of the organization, there's that clear understanding? And everyone knows how specifically their role impacts the bottom line, mm-hmm. the bottom line being that bigger purpose and goal. So you saying those connections to purpose, meaning, legacy, how are we at the leadership level really championing that at every single level of the organization? Mm-hmm. And so I we're, we're coming towards the end of time, but I could talk about this stuff with you all <laughs> yes. day. And you're trailblazing such important work in the well-being space and how we move through and unlearn toxic habits both for ourselves and at the organization level. So I want to ask a few a few questions to kind of round us out. Mm-hmm. In terms of your own life, who has trailblazed these paths for you? It's a hodgepodge, but I would say, of course, Oprah Winfrey, of course, the personal growth and the in, mm-hmm. inner work or whatever is just the, that's always been a part of her work. And that's always what I get from her, like that, like that's how I was introduced to Brene Brown and to all of these, you know, like thinkers, Albert Brooks and all these folks, because I think she's a big purpose and meaning and legacy person. And she talks about that house, you know, in the early days of her show, she had this crossroads where she said, like, we're not doing shows anymore without an intention. And we see where that got her. Right. And so she's one, I think, um, I love Brene Brown work on vulnerability was really, really key for me when I was going through those things. And um, honestly, just every Black woman that I've ever met (laughs) and every Black woman in history has just been like this study in how to persevere and how to own your voice, but still claim your space and do it with style and grace and uniqueness and authenticity. And so, you know, I could name them all, but I'll just say all of them. Yes. <laughs> Friends uh, and family included. <laughs> oh, yes. What's most challenging for you right now? I think what's most challenging for me in building my business and having this conversation is that I think it's not a way that people are still looking at work. And so it's hard sometimes in even with organizations to set myself an organization, like I'm going to come in and I'm going to talk about this. And they're just like, Oh, you know, I don't know. It's, it's one of those things where I know it's going to take a while for people to understand how I'm framing it and understand how it's useful for them. And so that's a challenge because when you're building a business, you know, you have a lot of people, even, even in, um, in entrepreneurship, there are people who have a certain way that they think entrepreneurship should be done. And I'm both looking at what they're doing to try to learn, you know, definitely stuff that I know I need to know, but also trying to craft something new that they don't know how to tell me how to do it. Like I was having a conversation with somebody, they're like, you have to market to people's pain. And I'm like, I don't do that. Like, I want them to see the possibility, you know, like, yeah, there are pain points, but I I don't want people to sit in pain. I want them to acknowledge that there's going to be pain. And then together work out strategies on how to work through that, but knowing that there's something on the other side of that. So I'm not going to be like, are you tired? Are you bored? Are you mad? Are you this? Then I can help you because I can't necessarily help you. What I can do is let's talk about how we can do this a different way. And let me Mm -hmm. share with you maybe some things that might be helpful for you in reframing and then coming up with a path for you to work through your specific pain points because we all have different pain points, even though they might be in similar categories of pain. So that's challenging for me right now, kind of like creating something that I don't think I necessarily see out there 
I mean, Toni Morrison said, like, you have to, if you, if you, there's a book out there you want to read that's not written, you have to write it. And so that's kind of where I feel like I'm at right now is like, I don't know if it's actually written what I want. You know, there's pieces or similar things, but it's not written yet. So I kind of have to build it on faith and on intuition. Yes, you're so right. And I've had this experience too, where we're looking for to others for answers sometimes, or people just want to give us their advice and their two cents. And yet it really has to come from inside, from seeking and sourcing that from within. And especially this piece of, I've been thinking about that pain point marketing too. And I've heard from others that's a more masculine way of marketing and the more feminine way of marketing is focused on abundance, is focused on more acknowledgement of reality, but moving through that and in community and together. So what are you most excited about now? We talked about challenge, Mm -hmm. but what are you excited for? I'm excited about building this community. I'm excited about having these conversations. I love talking about it. And I think that it can be changing. So I'm excited about, I've always been excited about helping to make an impact in people's lives. I've always been excited about helping people learn more about themselves. That's why I was working with students. It was like to see them like come into their own and give them opportunities to develop, you know, their skills and their talents and then find a way to operationalize that and put it out in the world has always been my so personal growth <laughs> and productivity, you know, those are my two things. And and so I love seeing people grow and I love the fact that as I talk to people and share this more that people are being receptive to it. And it is something that I think is valuable. And I don't think I knew that before because I was just like, maybe it's just me. Maybe I just think this way. And now that I'm having conversations, I realize that people do think this way and that we're starting to get that language to be able to talk about and have that conversation. Yes. And advocate differently and support each other differently. And so I think there's there's just so much here that, and you're right, when you're doing it for the first time, part of it is that education piece. I need to educate people before they're invested in this idea. But when you see how interconnected productivity is with motivation, with employee engagement, and how when you're ignoring those pieces, you're really, as an organization, doing a huge disservice to your ability to reach those high goals that you have. What's a book you read that changed the way you think about other people and or the world? Hmm. There are so many. I would it's say such a hard question. I'm going to throw um, The Alchemist out there. I know it's one of those ones that everybody loves, but I really, reading that book was so, it was so simple and it was a story, but there was so much in it. And before I left, higher ed to start my business I read it again and I was like yeah this is the reason why this is the reason why so that that was really really impactful to be and the way that it was told and the way that you can kind of get different things from it every time you read it was meaningful for me I think I'm due for a reread of The Alchemist because you're right depending on where you're at in your life you pull so many different centering and grounding pieces from it. Well, Joan, thank you for this conversation. Thank you for sharing your story and how you came to be in this work and and see this as such an integral piece of how we move forward. How can people follow your work and stay supporting you? Well, they can go to therealjoanmays.com. I spell my last name M-A-Z-E. Um, and so, um, there they'll find more information about what I'm working on. They'll find information about, um, I'm building, um, work wellness Academy. So it's going to be a coaching community and a support community for people who want to go on this journey and want to do this work. And so they'll find more information about that. And I'm starting a podcast too. So, uh, that should be out in the next uh, week or so, uh, and just follow. Yeah. We will share all that information in the show notes, everywhere else. But thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for really putting an eye on how we take care of ourselves and how we move through toxicity into something that really looks like meaning and purpose. And so I'm so glad you were on the show today. Thank you, Joan. Thank you. 
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Trailblazing in Color podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to hit subscribe for future episodes. You can also follow us on Instagram at, at trailblazingincolor and at trailblazingincolor.com slash podcast. The Trailblazing in Color podcast is created and executive produced by me, Sarah Chapman Becerra. The Trailblazing in Color podcast season one production team includes Alicia Archer and the podcast Bestie team, led by Angie M. Jordan and supported by Gene Credit and Sarah Decker. Our theme song was composed by Troy Chapman. Thanks, Dad.